0: All right, we're in the book of Acts. We took a little bit of pneumatology in relationship to the matter of discipleship last week, and in fact the last couple of times together in this study uh, we were looking at that matter of the ministry of the Spirit of God as it relates to the matter of discipleship. Now, um, The second subject that we want to talk about in relationship to discipleship in the book of Acts is the subject of salvation and the disciple. Now to say that the subject of salvation permeates the book of Acts would really be an understatement. It was at the very heart of the message of the disciples and uh, the theological term for this doctrine is soteriology uh, and uh, let me just put that down there for you. S o t e r i o l o g y. Soteriology. soteriology. Uh, the last subject was that of pneumatology. This is soteriology, and it comes from the the Greek word, so. Actually, soter, which means save. Or. So, teria, which is salvation, it's the doctrine of salvation. And it's used forty times or forty-five times. Uh, this word so teria is used forty-five times in our Bibles, and uh, forty different times or forty times it's translated salvation. And once it's translated deliver. Another time it's translated health. Once it's translated saving and twice it's translated saved. And uh, of the 45 times that you find this word in the New Testament, uh, seven of those is, are in the book of Acts, as well as in the book of Acts finding saved four times, saved ten times the verb, and Savior found twice. And so we have a considerable emphasis in the book of Acts on the matter of salvation. Now there are three essential things to study, not studying all that the book of Acts has to say about the matter of salvation, uh, but three essential areas that have to be touched on if you are going to have an accurate theology of of soteriology uh, from the book of Acts, and that is, first of all, the condition of salvation, secondly, the consequences of salvation, and thirdly, the constraints of salvation. Those three things are the three things that we'd like to study, and we'll get as far as we can tonight. If we don't finish, we'll finish up next Wednesday night. So, first of all, the condition of salvation. Now, a careful analysis of the book of Acts, looking at all of the passages that deal with the subject of salvation, some of them using the word, some of them not using the word, but going through the entire book, clear through 28 chapters, you conclude that there is one sole requisite for the matter of salvation, and it is simply faith. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I think that perhaps in a nutshell, the simplicity of Acts 16.31 is probably the best place to get your bearings on the subject of salvation, particularly as it relates to its conditions. In, the, in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, the setting of the story was that the Apostle Paul had been thrown in jail, and you recall there was an earthquake, the doors were flung open, but uh, the prisoners didn't escape. The, uh, the Philippian jailer, knowing that he was responsible for all of the prisoners, knowing he couldn't stop them all with their doors open, uh, he assumed they were all going to walk out. And knowing that a Roman soldier uh, was under the sentence of death, Or if not under the sentence of death, at least he had to bear all of the penalties of all of those that escaped under him. If a man had a 10-year sentence, he would have to go to jail for him for 10 years. And if a man had a 100-year sentence, he'd have to serve 100 years. And if you've got two people with 10 years each, then you would have to serve for 20 years. And here he had a jail full of prisoners, and they were all going to walk out. And so he could just imagine, can you imagine the crushing burden that came down upon him? He took his sword, he was going to take his life. Now, that of course would be a natural response for a pagan man under that kind of pressure. And so the Apostle Paul says, don't harm yourself, the prisoners are all here. Doors are open, the prisoners are all there. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. And then the Apostle said to the man, when he came to him and said, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house and so it's a simple matter of faith now this is reinforced as you go through the book and we will be seeing this as we develop this subject Uh, but um, for this moment just take my word for it all right and then of course be like the Bereans and go home and prove that these things be so but let's develop this a little bit this the there's several points that I want to make and I want you to sort of get these in sequence, if we can put them together. First of all, there is a faith not unto salvation. There are two instances in the book of Acts, and remember now, we are pretty well confining ourselves to studying of the subject of discipleship and the relationship to these various doctrines in the book of Acts. That doesn't mean there are not other supporting scriptures, other explanatory scriptures. But uh, we are confining ourselves pretty well to that. There are two examples in the book of Acts concerning those who had a belief, who had a faith, but who were apparently not believers. The first of these two was a man by the name of, of Simon. Simon called the sorcerer, Simon, and that's in Acts chapter 8. Let's look at Acts 8 a moment, and verse 13. Now, what happened here was that Philip has been preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, the people have responded, they have believed, and um, there has been those that have uh, been baptized. You go back a little bit, though, and you notice that there was this man, Simon, in verse 9, "...who previously in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God." He was posing all along to be a great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that for a long time he had bewitched them with sorcery. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. When they believed, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. Now the word is the same in the Greek. There's no distinction. But as you see the story develop, you have to ask yourself, what was it that Simon believed? Because it says, uh, then that he was baptized also, he continued with Philip and was amazed, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This was the first appearance of uh, the pneuma of the Paracletos in his permanent form coming to the people of Samaria. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomever, whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee. Notice that? Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. He had confused the grace of God, that thou hast neither part nor lot in this manner, in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps, and that, by the way, is a first-class condition, Meaning it's a fulfilled condition, since it's possible, in other words, the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. In other words, he didn't want the penalty. That's just the simple case. He just didn't want the penalty. Pray that these things won't come upon me. Pray that what you said would not happen, that my money would perish with me and all of that. Now, it's commonly accepted on the part of most of those that have studied this text that Simon was not a true believer. But it says in verse 13 that he believed. But apparently what happened was he simply believes the facts, but he did not put his trust, as what the word means really, he did not really put his trust in Jesus Christ. Because there's evidence here that the man never was a believer at all, even though he was baptized. Of course, baptism could never save him. And it took real trusting faith. He went through the motions, in other words. And he was a professor. He was one that professed to believe. But he demonstrated that he really was not a believer. So there is a faith that is not unto salvation. When a person merely believes facts and does not believe in Jesus Christ as personal Savior, then that individual is not indeed saved. The other case is clear over in Acts 26. Acts 26. In this case, it was a man by the name of Agrippa. And in the case of Agrippa... In chapter 26 and verse 27 you read these words this of course was when Paul was before King Agrippa and Paul has given some testimony and it says then uh, King Agrippa believest thou the prophets I know that thou believest now what did he believe he believed the facts of the Old Testament He believed he had faith in history. He knew what the prophets had said. He even believed that what they said was was a straight thing. He had a certain contact with the Old Testament and he had certain faith in it. But he did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could be saved. He failed to really have saving faith. He believed the Old Testament, but did not really believe Christ. Now notice, it says, Then Agrippa said unto him, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now the word actually there, almost, means in short. And uh, it, it, it really seems to, uh, to be more the idea that with this kind of a brief argument, are you trying to make a Christian out of me? That's probably the better sense. I realize that kind of blows our our use of this verse uh, for almost persuaded now to believe and so on that we sing in our hymn books. Uh, but uh, the words really do not, uh, do not match up. That he is saying, I'm almost ready to make a decision. That didn't seem to be what he was saying. Rather, he's saying, were you with this short argument trying to make me a Christian? And uh, so if that's one of your favorite verses in scripture, I'm sorry about that, but that's what it says. In any event, uh, the idea was he was not yet a Christian, even though he believed the Old Testament prophets. So you see, it's possible for a person to believe certain things. It's possible for them to believe the facts of the gospel. It's possible for them to believe the Old Testament prophets, but it is personal faith in Jesus Christ the fact that he died on the cross is your substitute for sins that really is saving faith. Remember in our study of this pneumatology and the matter of the Spirit of God, again we looked in the Gospel of John and we saw that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin. Of sin because they believe not the facts of the Gospel? Of sin because they believe not the uh, Old Testament prophets? No, of sin because they believe not in me, Christ said. So the initial conviction of the Holy Spirit is in the area of convicting them that they do not believe in Jesus Christ. And you see, the argument that Paul used in verse 23 here was that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. That is the argument. He's argued on the basis of the Old Testament and all the rest. And he says, this is the facts. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose. Do you believe that? And they didn't. All right, so there is a faith in the book of Acts, which is not on to salvation. But then secondly, saving faith, saving faith must be in Jesus Christ. Saving faith must be in Jesus Christ. Now, a good place to start as just sort of a uh, kickoff verse, all right, is over in the Gospel of I mean, in the Book of Acts, and uh, chapter 4, and verse 12. This, of course, was when Peter was standing before the Sanhedrin making his defense, and uh, he tells them, In verse 10, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you well, the man that they had had healed by the gate beautiful. And they were, of course, questioning that. Then notice, he quotes to them something they were very familiar with, something that is found in the 118th Psalm. It says, this is the stone which which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner." Remember the stone that would set it not in the temple, in the building of the temple, referred to in Psalm 118? The stone that nobody could find that would fit into the framework of the building? And they cast it into the trash heap and they said, this isn't any good. And all of a sudden, as they were ready, after they got the stones all set to to go and ready to put them together, the master builder said, first of all, we start with the cornerstone. Where's the cornerstone? They looked around, all the stones that were laid out there so nicely ready for construction, they could not find the cornerstone. Finally, he looks over and here, the stone that the builders rejected was the head of the corner. And here Peter says to them, you crucified Jesus Christ. He was that head cornerstone. And you crucified him. Then look, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name. There is only one means of salvation. Christ said in John chapter 14, I am the way, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the only means of salvation. Now, that sort of becomes the key then to the concept here in the book of Acts that saving faith must be in Jesus Christ. Now, let's, uh, let's look at several passages and just kind of pick this idea up. We won't uh, give you much background on these, just give you the verses from their texts, all right? Acts chapter 10, first of all, verses 42 and 43. Peter speaking to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. And he commanded us, God commanded us, to preach unto the people and to testify that it was he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him gave all the prophets witness that through his name, that is the name of Jesus Christ, through his name, whosoever believeth, where? In him shall receive remission of sins." Then reiterating this story in Acts chapter 11, verse 17, Peter says, For as much then as God gave them the same gift, that is, the gift of the Holy Spirit, as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase again, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. All right? That phrase, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number uh, believed and turned unto the Lord. Look at Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. (coughs) Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when he had ordained elders in every church and had prayed with fasting... They commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Who did they believe? On They believed on the Lord. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 31. We looked at it a moment ago, but let's go beyond it. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night washed their stripes was baptized he and all his immediately and when he had brought them into his house he set food before them and rejoiced believing in god with all his house i just might say there that in verse 34 it says believing in god remember that that then becomes a parallel statement with believing on the lord jesus christ and so it's thinking here of Jesus Christ as God. So he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as God, if you please. And then Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Remember again, the king Agrippa believed in the facts of history. Simon believed in the facts of the gospel, but it does not say that they believed in the Lord, or that they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, of course, then is a key. Always it has to be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. Now, the third thing that we see concerning this is that the message is made known Through disciples. Basic means of spreading the message is through people who have had such an experience with the Lord. Who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 15 in verse 7. You see that first of all there was a creed that was preached. This is only one of many passages we could turn to. But it says when there had been much disputing. Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among you, or among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. I see the key word in all of this is this idea of faith, this idea of believing. And so therefore he's saying that it's by my mouth that God has chosen to bring the message to you. Now, mind you, I, I, I'm amazed at this sometimes because, uh, uh, as one song says, uh, he could have sent angels to deliver this message. He could have done that. It is that God has chosen to use people like you and like me to perpetuate this message of the gospel. I sometimes think God could have done a better job with angels. because uh, they could have uh, enunciated everything very clearly and they wouldn't wouldn't foul everything up like we do sometimes in our attempts to witness. But God didn't see it that way. See, that's human wisdom that sees it that way. God saw that the best possible way of propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ was by spirit-filled individuals. That's the way to get the message out as far as God is concerned. And so therefore... He gives to us the responsibility to, by creed, preach the gospel. But that's not all. Look back at chapter 13 and verse 12. He also used the conduct of the individuals. And in the book of Acts, a lot of that conduct had to do with signs and wonders and miracles. It says in chapter 13, verse 12, Paul's on his first missionary journey, hardly off the ground here. And it says, then the deputy... When he saw what was done, believed, being astonished, at the doctrine of the Lord. That is, he saw in the life of these individuals something that was absolutely amazing. In this case, it was a sign and wonder. It was the fact that there, uh, that there was actually a, a, a condemnation of the sorcerer. Uh, Peter faced so- Simon the sorcerer, and Paul faced Elemas the sorcerer. They both faced a sorcerer. And, uh, and so Paul uh, says to him, O, o full of all deceit and all mischief, and the child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. Thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. Immediately there fell in him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeing some to lead him by the hand. It was a miracle that God had wrought by the hand of Paul. And the result was that this man believed, this deputy believed the gospel of Jesus Christ because of something he had seen the Apostle Paul accomplish. Now, mind you, uh, I want to carry that a little further in just saying that the signs and wonders of the book of Acts were given for the purpose of authenticating the apostolic ministry. The reason that was important, that they have signs and wonders, was because they had to authenticate their authority in order to have an authoritative scripture What they wrote then was authoritative because they demonstrated their power by signs and wonders. You see, God today still does signs and wonders, but he doesn't do them in the... We can't command anybody to be blind, and immediately a mist comes on their eyes and they're blind. Paul could do that. But what God still does today is he uses miraculous lives like yours and mine. As Christ brought a change in our life, as people see that change then there is the, the result is that people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I, let me just ask you, how many of you were influenced in, in some way in receiving the gospel by the life of another person? Sure. You saw reality in the life. The miracle that Christ could do. And remember, it took a miracle to hang the worlds in space. It took a, a, a miracle to put the stars in place. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, It took a miracle of love and grace. And you see, God is still in the miracle business. But he primarily now demonstrates to the world the miracle of changed lives. As people see our lives changed, then they'll see Christ. So you see, both by creed and by conduct, and that's, of course, a message that goes through the book of Acts uh, and also goes through the epistles. The fact that creed and conduct must match up in order for the message to be ultimately effective. But the message is made known through the disciples. And wherever you go in the book of Acts, you find these disciples ministering the word of God and souls being saved as a result. You see very seldom, either in the book of Acts or in history, the salvation of a person apart from human instrumentality. Now there are cases. But it's a rare case. The Apostle Paul was close to that i think that his stoning of stephen his standing there keeping the coats supervising the job as they stoned stephen had a great effect upon the apostle paul but as far as his final step of salvation there was no human instrumentality except from the standpoint that christ appeared to him in human form there was no human instrumentality apart from jesus christ in the salvation of the apostle paul other than that example of stephen So that's even not a complete example. But very seldom, very seldom is there that bolt from the blue type of salvation where a person never has heard you say a word about it and all of a sudden the Lord brings the message to him without human instrumentality. He uses people. Now let me just ask you, quit preaching and go to Medellin for a minute. Are you available to be used? Are you ready? Do you realize that if you're a Christian in that plant where you work, and you may be the only Christian there and you may kind of say, "Oh, brother, I wish I had more Christians." Well, get busy. There are a lot of people there to be reached. Are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel of Christ? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be God's instrument because I think in terms of a very crucial passage of scripture and uh don't uh, don't explain it away. God said, and this not mind you now is looking at it from the from the standpoint of what we can see. We don't the whole thing of the election and the sovereignty of God and all of that is something else. But in the book of Ezekiel, it says that if you don't warn the wicked man to flee from his wicked way that he will die in his sin, but his blood will I require at your hand. Now let that grip your soul. There is at least in some senses a responsibility that God lays upon our shoulders that we will be held accountable for in regard to the salvation of souls. Even though we can't save a soul, all we can do is cooperate with the Holy Spirit Yet there's a sense in which there is a a, a tremendous responsibility laid upon us. All right, now, the fourth thing then is this. The act of believing, the act of believing is by grace and thus Rooted in the eternal counsels of God. All right, now that's a mouthful. Let me show what the Scripture says. And remember, now this book of Acts is a historical book; is primarily not a doctrinal book. The great doctrines of election and so on are taught in other passages of Scripture. But in the book of Acts, they are referred to historically as something that is indeed a fact. And we have to remember that even though there is a human side, there is also a divine side. And from the standpoint of the divine side, salvation is by grace. And it's rooted in the eternal counsels of God. Now let's just look at what it says without getting too far into the whole argument. Acts chapter 18 and verse 27. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he was come, helped them much who had believed through grace. What was it that brought them to belief? It was God's grace. It wasn't as though they just worked up a storm toward wanting to believe. They thought, boy, you know, this is what I've been looking for all my life, and I'm going to reach out and take it. No, sir. They would have no ability. Remember we studied some time back in the book of of, uh, John, where it said that no one can come to the Savior except the Spirit drawing. It takes a sovereign act of God to draw a person to himself. And if a person is, if the Holy Spirit tries to draw and the person resists, he has no guarantee. No guarantee that the Holy Spirit will come back. In many cases, he does. But he has no guarantee of that. And God can say legitimately, he's had his chance. He refused it. God, because he's a God of love and a God of mercy, often brings that chance again and again. But I'll tell you, what a dangerous thing to say no to God. And so you see, it's the drawing of grace that is involved. And then even a stronger verse, over in Acts chapter 13. Remember now, this is being reported as a fact. It's not teaching the doctrine. It's merely reporting it as a fact. If you look at Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as, get this now, as many as were, as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, I don't want to complicate your theology. But we have a tendency, you know, to put everything in a neat little package so we can understand it. One of the neat little packages is to, uh, to say that uh, we see on the, the door going in, whosoever will. may come and then you go in the door and you look back can't even draw it the same way a second time doesn't look like the same door does it it says elect before the foundation of the world and so on now that's a nice little package and sounds good but it sure doesn't explain everything there is to explain about the concept of election and the concept of the fact that in some way that is difficult for us to contemplate and think about and difficult for us to understand that God is a sovereign God. And that God, though there's nothing in Scripture to indicate that God elects anyone to be lost, there's a great deal in Scripture that talks about the fact that He elects people to be saved. And you can't get away from that fact. And one of those places is right here. The word... Ordained there is the word tasso, which means to set in rank. Now, one of the beautiful things about election is that Scripture makes clear that Jesus Christ is the elect one. Christ is the elect one. So obviously, when a person is in Christ, he's elect as simple as that. Now that's not all to the theology of it, but that's sure enough to uh, suffice for the moment, all right? But the point is that it's rooted in the divine counsels of God, that, that salvation in the book of Acts, as taught in the book of Acts, for these disciples and what they ministered, that it was not a matter of man deciding who is going to be saved, but of God making that decision. And that doesn't mean that he's sending people arbitrarily to hell. Because he's not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. But it does mean that it, the human element is out of it. And that's the thing we have to get in, get in our hearts and minds. The human element in regard to salvation is not there. We talked about the human element in soul winning. When we were talking about pneumatology. You cannot save soul. You cannot bring people to Christ. You cannot do anything except be available to God to be used and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that has to draw them. And that is something that God does in his grace and in his sovereignty. And we just have to be available tools, ready to minister. But the theology of soteriology in the book of Acts, as in every other book of scripture, makes it clear that we understand that salvation is not something that people deserve. Do you hear me? Nobody, nobody is God's debtor. There is nobody who can say when he gets to heaven, boy, I'll tell you, God, it's sure a good thing you got me here because I deserve this. Nobody. There's only one thing that man deserves, and that is hell. Boy, he has earned that all the way down the line. The wages of sin is death. You have earned that. You deserve that. And you see, if God saved one soul out of the whole business, it would demonstrate his mercy. One. Boy, aren't you glad he got more than one? (laughs) He didn't have to. He did not have to. There is no individual who deserves even the least of God's favor. And what he has done, he did entirely by grace. And that's the way we have to accept it. We have to say, Lord, I didn't deserve it. Boy, I sure thank you for it. That doesn't keep you humble, nothing will. That's the way it is. That's the way it's taught in the book of Acts. Soteriology in the book of Acts. All right. Now, number five. Here's one that will blow your mind. A synonym for faith. is repent. A synonym for faith is repent. Now let's explain repent. Here's the word. M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O Metaneo The word means one thing and one thing only. Noeo is mind. Meta is change. It means a change of mind. Now, some people have a problem with this. Because, popularly speaking, the word repent has come to mean a lot more than that. It means changing your life and a lot of other things. And,. um, Yet the word itself means to change your mind. Remember, we're talking now about salvation. We're not talking about repentance after salvation. Remember, repentance after salvation, the change of mind, can mean a lot of things. In fact, you realize that God wants us constantly to repent as far as Christians are concerned he wants to constantly change our mind he wants to bring every thought into captivity the obedience of Christ he wants to transform our minds by the renewing transform our lives by the renewing of our minds and he tells us time after time that we are to renew our minds that we are to we are to have change take about in our life and so there is a sense in which there's the use of repentance and the change of mind for the believer, and there's the change of mind for the unbeliever. The change of mind for the unbeliever has absolutely nothing to do with him changing his ways, changing his life, or changing anything else. Those may be byproducts. But the thing that, that uh, metano uh, uh, means in the book of Acts is to change your mind concerning Jesus Christ. And you look at all of the passages that deal with the subject of repentance in the book of Acts, and time after time you find that the context is mainly talking to Jewish people, and it is saying to them, here is Jesus Christ. You know who he is. He's the fellow that died on Calvary. They knew that. You crucified him. You you put him to death. David said that the Messiah would come, and he fulfilled all of those things concerning the Messiah, and that he died and that he is rising from the dead again. And therefore, this... One that you crucified is indeed the one that David promised. He is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. Now repent. Now by that he did not mean go out and burn your idols. Because they didn't have any idols. He didn't even say to them, change your theology. Because you see their theology was basically Old Testament theology. Which was basically sound for Old Testament believers. But he says to them, repent. Change your mind. That is, change your mind as to who this person was. You don't believe he was the Messiah. You've got to believe he was. You don't believe he was God. You've got to believe he was. You don't believe he rose from the dead. You've got to believe he did. That is repentance. So what are you doing when you repent? When you change your mind concerning Christ, you're putting your trust in him. You're putting your faith in him. You're coming to a new understanding as to who he is. And so it's synonymous with the idea of personal faith. It is so interrelated that you can hardly divorce the two at all. Now as salvation, as with salvation, repentance is a gift. You can't just make up your mind you're gonna change your mind. It is God in His sovereignty that brings you about to a changing of your mind. Remember the Holy Spirit convicts of sin because they believe not in me. Holy Spirit's in the business of convicting people that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Now notice, if you will, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, that is Jesus Christ, to give, notice, to give. Not that man works it up. It's something that God gives. To give repentance to Israel. And in the process, forgiveness of sins. Look at Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then God hath also to the Gentiles granted as a gift of grace, granted repentance unto life, even to the Gentiles. They were allowed as well, as God granted it to them, the ability to have a change of mind concerning Jesus Christ. So it means that you change your mind concerning who Christ really is. He's no longer just the carpenter's son. He's no longer just that resident of, of, of uh, Nazareth, uh, the... itinerant preacher of galilee he's no longer just one who died perhaps an unfortunate death as some people have thought you must change your mind concerning that i love that book evidence that demands a verdict by josh mcdowell do you know why i like it so well because it is is a, a tool in the hands of the holy spirit that can be used to change a person's mind concerning who jesus christ is As he goes through the the various basic apologetics that have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry. You don't have that book, you ought to have it. You ought to have several of them. Give them to friends who are skeptics. And then pray that the Holy Spirit will use that instrument to grant repentance. But the repentance is not that he cleans up his life. And that is a part of salvation. You know, there are people today that just have all kinds of steps to salvation. You you repent and believe and are baptized and whatever else they want to add, you know. And so they say repent, that means you've got to change your ways. So you change. Who in the world can change good night you know to tell a person he's got to change in order to be saved the most ridiculous thing in the world he can't change he has no power to change and then to believe and that of course is legitimate and then to be baptized as a part of salvation it's an error it's wrong we'll see that in a moment but you see that you add all of these things and so people are all confused about the issue of salvation what's the issue of salvation well Paul said it in a nutshell Best way to find out what the essentials are, with everything else stripped away, is to find someone in a crisis. This guy's about ready to put his sword to himself. And Paul says, hold it. He didn't say repent. He didn't say anything else. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now this guy's a Gentile. He never heard the gospel before, in all likelihood. He probably has heard about it. He's heard Paul and Silas sing. They may have been singing some gospel enough to rock that prison. It must have been something. (laughs) In any event, what must I do to be saved? And by that question, he opens the door. And Paul, knowing that this is a crisis situation, he gives him the bare bones gospel. He doesn't mention baptism, though he was baptized later on. He doesn't mention repentance, though repentance is something that comes up later on. He doesn't even preach the gospel to him. He just says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And do it quick, you know. And the man believed. And he was saved. So that's the bare bones gospel. But you see, all of these other things are interrelated in one way or another. And we can't confuse the issue. Now let's look just a little further. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted. That your sins may be blotted out. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Now, there is no mention there about faith in Jesus Christ. Just simply repent, and he's quoting here from the Old Testament. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing should come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ who before was preached unto you. They had preached Christ earlier, but now look at the context, if you will. It says, when Peter saw it, he answered the people, verse 12, Ye men of Israel, why marvel at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though in our own power and holiness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just... And desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. That in his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. He talks about faith there in regard to the healing of the man. Whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It's faith in Jesus Christ that brought about this man's healing. He says that twice. What does he say to them? And now, brethren, I know that through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. You didn't know what you were doing. If you'd known that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, you never would have killed him. Scripture makes that unmistakably clear. They blew it, that's all. In fact, there is the implication that even Satan blew it. He wasn't sure himself of all of the devastating results of the crucifixion of Christ. And so then it says... But those things which God before hath shown by the mouth of his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled, he's accomplished his purpose. Repent, therefore. Now, is he telling him to quit smoking? Chewing? Drinking? Quit carousing around? No, he's not saying repent. He's saying repent concerning Jesus Christ. You were ignorant, and you crucified this man. Now change your mind concerning him. That is the equivalent of faith. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 and verse 30. And the times of this ignorance, again the context is concerning Jesus Christ, here on Mars Hill, the times of this ignorance God overlooked, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Change your mind. Change your mind. And in particular, change your mind from the fact that idols are going to be able to help you to the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the answer to your need. All right? Look at Acts chapter 20. Incidentally, even the Schofield uh, notes uh, talk about the fact that repentance is a change of mind concerning concerning yourself concerning sin and concerning jesus christ but the interesting thing is that you can't support that from the text you can't support that from the text because the scripture the scripture lays out this matter of repentance and it's always in relationship to changing mind concerning who jesus christ is changing your mind concerning him so acts chapter 20 verse 1 After the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed that they go into Macedonia. That's not the passage. I think i got a typo here. Um, Well, let's skip that one. Let's go to Acts 26.20. Acts 26.20. But showed first unto them of Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the borders of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent. Now, notice, here's the order repent, that has to do with faith in Jesus Christ, turn to God, that has to do with conversion, and then do the works fit for repentance. Now, there's where works are involved, but notice the order. That is something that is involved as far as their as their order the change of life comes as the works that are fit for repentance if you change your mind concerning jesus christ there is a natural change in your life because you see when you believe that he is god and that he lives in you and there are a lot of things in your life that you just can't do anymore you know how that changes a lot of you saw saw things in your life just shed like old clothes after you accepted Jesus Christ, it's the most natural thing in the world. There's just some things you're not comfortable with. You know, it's a, a girl one time accepted the Lord. and was, She already had a date lined up. She went with this guy. She'd always enjoyed him before and enjoyed the places they went. And she was perfectly miserable the whole night. And he says, he says to her, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? She says, no, I think I'm well for the first time in my life. Maybe I was sick before. She says, I just don't enjoy any of this anymore. Then she gave her testimony, shared how she had accepted Christ and how she didn't realize, but her her outlook on life had changed. As a result, she just couldn't enjoy the things of the world anymore in the same way. You see, that's the thing that's involved when Jesus Christ changes the life. So you see, repentance is not a condition or a prerequisite to salvation. It's not even just a consequence of salvation. But it's a vital part of living faith, having to do with changing your mind concerning Jesus Christ. Now, that leads us then to the next thought, which we won't have time to go into tonight. But number six is that faith alone is sufficient. Whole book of Romans, uh, whole book of Galatians was written to prove the point. But there's a very crucial, crucial time in the life of the early church where they were faced with this question. Is it, is it, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace through faith, plus Or is it by grace through faith plus nothing? The title of the book of Galatians could be by grace through faith plus nothing. You cannot add to salvation or you jeopardize the whole thing. So next week we'll talk about that and then we'll talk about the matter of the... um, the concept of the consequences of salvation. What does it teach in the book of Acts that happened when people had real faith in Jesus Christ? And then finally, the constraints of salvation. What are some of the things that the book of Acts says take place in the hearts and the lives of people who really have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and then have those things happened to you? Check yourself out. Scripture says we are to examine ourselves, see if we be in the faith. And so going through the theology of soteriology in the book of Acts is a good way to evaluate your own relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these teachings. And we just pray that you will help us to go from here with a new excitement about the finished work of Jesus Christ, accomplished on our behalf. Bless us as we go our our several ways, and just give us a wonderful time of fellowship together in the things of the Lord, wherever we may be in days to come. And we pray for the people uh, that gather together, as will so many of us be scattered from time to time throughout the summer. We pray that you will give journeying mercies and and give just a, a time of rest and refreshment with the family and with friends in the holiday time. But meanwhile, Lord, help us to always put you first and to never forget the opportunities that we must have to study your word. Grant this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.